Audio Parfait. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're recording, by the way. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> uh, I wish I would have known. I told you to speak up. <laughs> right. Well, welcome back to my gibberish. It's uh, Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. And how are you guys doing? Hope everybody liked our series on Robert E. Howard. I know it was kind of fun for a little bit and kind of a downer there at the end. Very so somber. Hopefully it didn't uh, emotionally scar anybody too much. Um, so we're going to move on to somebody, I wouldn't say she's a lot more chipper than he was, uh, she's not quite as crazy, but she's got her, uh, quirks, her quirks, and yes, I'm saying her, because we are covering our first woman author. Yeah, woman power, bitches! Yeah, so I didn't want to go, there's so many, you look up the best authors in history, and there's so many men that are on there, just because men tend to dominate fucking everything, just because... That's the what men do. We, because they have a penis between their legs. Because we just try to dominate everything. But mm -hmm. there's so many amazing woman authors. I didn't want to put off till like the fifth or sixth or seventh series before we covered a woman author. So like when we started. You probably should have started with a woman. No, we started with who I believe we should have started with. Because he, you had a boner for Mark No, Blake. I didn't have a boner. Quit saying I have boners for people. Uh Never. It's just he was the first one. When I thought of this, he was the first one that always came to mind. For some reason, he was always the first one. And again, I think it's because he's so ingrained into the American culture. He he grew up not far from where we live. And I knew quite a bit about Mark Twain already. So he's always the first one that came to mind. So when it came time to do the story, uh, the, the biography of a woman author, it was the same thing. It was the first woman author that came to mind. I mean, you can think of there's multitudes of women authors, but this is the first one that came to my mind. So the subject of the next couple episodes only wrote two novels, a small handful of articles and magazines as well, but nothing really even worth mentioning. Uh, the main focus is these two writings. And... Technically, she only wrote one manuscript that was the basis for both novels. I mean, she did write two novels, but it's kind of like she, she took this one story and then just split it in two. Even though the second one has much of the first one in it? Yeah. Uh, most of you probably know the second one because of all the fanfare, publicity, and controversy around it. But if you went to grade school or high school... In America, you definitely know the first one. Why? Because you had to. It was required reading for almost every American child. And after you read it, you either wrote a report on it, or took a test on it, or both. And if you had a really cool teacher, like I did, uh, you got to spend the next two or three classes watching the movie, which is one of the best adaptations from book to movie in cinema history. It is. Um, the, both book and movie won awards. A lot of book movies that come out don't. 
That's very true. But just because it wins awards doesn't mean that it's a great it is, ad- You watch this movie, and it is one of the best adaptations from book to movie ever written. I agree that it is one of the best. Again, like what you brought up in our last series, how pissed off you were at Tim Burton and Ransom Riggs about the whole... Miss Peregrine's Ms. Okay. Home for Peculiar Children. And how many, how much stuff you're mad at about what they left out in Harry Potter, even yes. though you're a huge Harry. Yes. With this book and this movie, it's spot on. And she was a huge part of why it was spot on. She was there with it. But the weirdest thing, I would say, about the one manuscript being turned into two novels is the fact that there are over... 50 years apart between the two. More than 50 fucking years. That's a long time to wait for a sequel. Technically not a sequel. But it is It is technically a sequel. You read it, it is a sequel. Because it goes, the, the main character is an adult now. Child in the book. If you haven't been able to guess it yet, which I'm sure most of you have, uh, let me introduce you to her. I give you... The always witty, always honest, only mostly sometimes drunk, southern tomboy from Alabama. Ladies and gentlemen, Harper Lee. Yay! Now, in this, we will cover Mockingbird, obviously, because it's the, I mean, come on. It, you talk about the two novels she wrote. To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird is, you know. Go watch, or... Go, go set a watchman. Go set a watchman. Uh, her life, her family, or what we could find of them. Uh, a childhood friend that she would go on to help write his own iconic piece of literature. Uh, her publisher, with whom she would never have been able, without whom she would have never been able to sell the book. Not just because she needed a publisher to put it out, but because the book was nowhere near ready. And it was in need of many revisions. Uh, we'll cover the general tone of the country at the time period Mockingbird was set in, in the 30s. Her fall or sidestep of the limelight. She never really, the only reason she falls out of the limelight is because she wants to. Most people fall out of the limelight because nobody cares about them anymore. Right. This was never the issue. People didn't stop caring about Harper Lee. She just didn't want people to give a shit about her. She she loved the the praise for a little bit, and then it was, okay, you can stop now. I'm good. I'm good. And I think that's why people still loved her is because she was so humble. Well, you'll find out when it, the people that she lived around in New York didn't realize who she was who she was. Most of the people who she lived around in New York thought that she was, Harper Lee was dead because you never fucking heard from her. Uh her abandoned attempt at a true crime novel, and of course the controversy around Ghost Out of Watchmen. Now, as always, before we get to the, the meat of the story, we have to give credit where credit is due. So, time for our references. Uh, an article only by Nancy G. Nancy G. Anderson from Auburn University at Montgomery. Uh, Times articles by Robert Sullivan, Melissa Faye Green, and Casey Sepp. New York Times articles by Jonathan Mahler and Jennifer Crosby Howard, and Sergey F. Kavaleski and Alexandra Alter. A series of articles from William Giraldi written in The New Republic. An article by J. Wayne Flint from Encyclopedia of Alabama.org. Barbara Marazzani 
at biography.com. We've used some of her stuff before. Uh, study guide at bard.org. Darren Salter from the University of Washington. Roy Wenzel from the Washington Times. Katie Kilkenny from the Pacific Standard. The book Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp. Uh, Charles J. Shields' book Mockingbird, A Portrait of Harper Lee. And of course, as little as possible, from Wikipedia. Mostly for the bibliography, which you don't really need in this case, since there's only two. But she did write some articles. I don't really cover them all that much, because it's just shit that she did real quick and then was done. Um, but you go on there and, and you double check and make sure everything's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. So, Nell Harper Lee, named after her gram- grandmother, Nell is Ellen, backwards, and Harper to honor pediatrician Dr. William W. Harper, who saved the life of her sister, Louise. Uh, she was born April 28, 1926, in Monroeville, Alabama. Uh, fun fact, she wasn't the first famous Lee from the South. She was related to Confederate General Robert E. Lee, that Robert E. Lee, the big one. Uh, Poor lady. Uh, they were 13th cousins, five times removed. But here's the kicker. It wasn't on her father's side. It wasn't the Lee side that she was related to him on. It was her mother's side. So she's somehow ancestral no, related? No, no. You, you go back about 13 generations, and then you and then you get those ancestors, and you jump over to them, and then you go down a couple, and there's Robert E. Lee. It's just coincidence that she married a Lee, and his, I believe, mother married a Lee. Completely separate. They're they're related on her mother's side, on the Finch side, or not uh, the uh, not the Finch side. I'm sorry, the um, Cunning, yeah, yeah, the fin- yeah Cunningham, yeah, the Finch side. That's interesting. I know because I I pulled up the fan. They have you can look up ancestry of certain famous people, right? And when I looked hers up because I saw that she was related, so okay, well let's see how far back it goes, and you look. Harper Lee, now Harper Lee, and you look up and you see her parents. And then you look above her parents and you see her mom's parents. And then you go up and you see her mom's parents. And you go up and you see his, her dad's parents. And you keep going up and up and up and then over and down and there's Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I know. It's kind of fucked up. It is. I, wow. Uh, she was the youngest of four children. Uh, Alice Finchley, born 1911, Louise Lee Connor, born in 1916, and Edwin Lee, born in 1920, to a lawyer father and a homemaker mother just a few years before the start of the Great Depression, when uh, the racial tension in the nation was at one of its worst times. Something, oh, and living in Alabama. Yeah, something that would shape Lee and her writing. So you think it's bad now, which it is. It's bad now, especially that that young man just got killed just for jogging. Yes. In the, I mean, you say it was the wrong neighborhood, but it's it's somewhere that he jogs. I'm guessing all the time because they had videos of him going into this house that was under construction, which isn't that abnormal. I worked construction for a lot of years. 
We had people we didn't know coming into there just to look around to see what was going on all the time. I've done it myself. And two guys chase them down and fucking murder them. So, unfortunately, the racial injustices that we're going to see, even though they're... What we will talk about later is pretty fucking horrible. They're still not gone. And it, it, it sucks. But that's the way the world is right now. It has been for fuck ever. It sucks. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't. But it's definitely something that shaped how she wrote. It shaped... I mean, it's the, it's the basis for Mockingbird, is that fucking trial. And that's something, we'll get into that a little later. First, again, to know the person, you have to know where they came from. So her father, Amasa Coleman Lee, we'll call him AC, uh, born July 19th, 1880, in Georgiana, Butler County, Alabama, to Cater A. Lee and his wife, the former Theodosa Wyndham. No, I don't think any relation to the wrestling Wyndhams. But who fucking knows? Apparently she's related to Robert E. Lee, 13th cousin, five times removed. So, I mean, hell, yeah, you can... Who knows? Uh, He was raised on a farm in in or near Chipley, Washington County, Florida, and was the product of a disciplined Methodist upbringing, which instilled in him that a life worth living include devotion to helping others. So, I mean, that's a good way to be brought up. Devotion to helping others could be, I mean, a lot worse things for you to be brought up on. Yeah. Though he had few years of formal education and none at college, Lee passed the Alabama teacher's exam and moved to Monroe Monroe County, Alabama to teach. On June 22, 1910, Lee married Frances Cunningham Finch, the daughter of a local postmaster in Monroe County. In addition to teaching school, A.C. became a clerk or bookkeeper at the Flat Creek Sawmill in Fitchburg. In 1912, the Lees moved to Monroeville. He managed a small logging railroad line in nearby nearby Manistee, the Manistee and Repton Railway, for a law firm then called Barnett & Bug. Okay, so let me get this, this straight. Sure. How fucking Alabama is it that you don't have to have an education to pass a test to become a fucking teacher? You say that. But in in how when we we just got done with Robert E. Howard, the first episode of that, we only did two, so the first one, uh, his father became a doctor in Texas without a license. Remember? They were selling license. They, they're pretty sure that he actually went to school for a little bit, but it was put down on his, his paperwork, practicing doctor without a license. And he did that for the rest of his life. He practiced medicine. Oh, my God. The on, fucking on, South, on, man. On, well, and it wasn't, it's not just that it was the South. It was the early 1900s. Most, I mean... They weren't regulations then like there are now. There wasn't the expectations of certain things then as there are I mean, now. he did you have were, to have some knowledge to pass passed, the he test. Passed, he passed the teacher's test. But again, the knowledge back then in Alabama or in Texas or, or pretty much anywhere in the U.S., not just the South, anywhere in the U.S., the knowledge to have to do that 
probably wasn't as high as what it is now. Well, back then, even in the the northern states or the Yankee states or whatever, they had higher standards in the northern states than they did in the southern. I don't know. We'd have to look into that to, to see if, if you really did need higher standards. But, I mean, remember, this is the turn of the century. World War One is just over. So... Making sure people had the right schooling for certain things probably wasn't on everybody's to-do list. Uh, in 1915 AC, having read law under the guidance of the Barnett and Bug lawyers, passed the Alabama bar exam. Again, no college, but he studied under these other lawyers. So back it was, it was like back when the boomers started getting all these big jobs. You didn't really need to have the schooling or the experience as long as you were smart enough and willing to learn on the job. And that's pretty much what they were doing. He was learning on the job. And if he was smart enough to get it down and smart enough for these other lawyers to say, yeah, you got it, then there was no reason that he couldn't go take the bar exam, which he did, and he passed. So he had an informal education, not a formal one. Yeah, and he was and he was smart, smart enough to get a teacher's degree and pass the, a lawyer's bar exam without any real schooling. Which takes quite a bit. Yeah, that does. And I, I give him credit for that. That's uh, After he passed the bar exam, he be- began to practice law, mainly in Monroe County. Uh, when he became a partner, the firm was renamed Barrett, Bug, and Lee. In 1929, Lee bought the Monroe Journal, which he would own and edit until 1947. As a lawyer, A.C. represented various individuals in Monroe and surrounding counties, as well as the railway. Before that, A.C. concentrated on real estate, title, legal work. Uh, He once defended two black men accused of murdering a white storekeeper. Both clients, father and son, were hanged. Because if you were, at the time, if you were black and you were put up for something, you were pretty much guilty automatically. So much like today, unless you have money. Uh, Probably worse. Because there are certain avenues that have to be taken as far as jury selection and everything. Because back then it was, uh, these two are being brought up for this. All white jury, white judge, two white lawyers. You really don't stand a chance. I mean, honestly, you don't. It's depressing. Yeah. Now, from 1927 to 1939, Lee won elections three times to four-year terms representing Monroe County part-time in the Alabama House of Representatives. He's making a name for himself. Uh, After World War II, he practiced law with his eldest daughter, Alice, and hoped to also bring in Nell and rename the firm A.C. Lee and Daughters. Uh, But that dream never materialized because Lee Harper goes on to become an author. Uh, Alice does join him in the law firm. And she's fairly successful at it. She takes it over for him after he dies. So, you know, things don't go exactly the way he wants, but it's not like the whole thing falls apart. He, One of his daughters does come and work with him. Uh, in 1951, A.C. lost both his wife, who long suffered fragile health and died from cardiac arrest days after receiving a cancer diagnosis, and son Edwin, a pilot who succumbed to an aneurysm in his barracks. She, so uh, he sold the family home and moved into a smaller house with his daughter and business partner, Alice. 
He was a man of character and good judgment and the inspiration for the main character, Atticus Finch, in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, now we had mentioned her mother, uh, Frances Cunningham Finch, born August 14, 1888, in Monroe County, Alabama, to James Cunningham Fish, Finch and Ellen Rivers Williams, into a prosperous family. She was intellectually brilliant, a gifted pianist, and attended one of the finest private schools for girls in the South. So we're already seeing that Harper is coming from some pretty good stock, intelligence-wise. Uh, at age 19, Francis married A.C., who was eight years her senior. Francis also suffered from a nervous disorder, most likely undiagnosed manic depression. By the time Nell was born, Francis's medical uh, mental illnesses had rendered her emotionally inaccessible to Nell. AC was the most present parent in Nell's life, and she adored him for it. He spoke to children as adults and listened to them with the same respect and attention. Francis died June 2nd, 1951, in Selma, Alabama, never getting to see Harper reach her immense success. Aww. Yeah, so... She, she doesn't have a bad upbringing. It just really sucks that she didn't get to know her mom that well because her mom's mental state had deteriorated by then. And you'll see Nell doesn't really get her get in her groove until she's a little older. Not quite our age, but definitely not young, you know, as far as getting into your profession goes. Right. And so her mother never gets to see... That success that yeah. every mother wants to see. And neither does her dad. Well, her no, her dad gets to see it. Her dad lives for a, you know, for a few more years. You'll find out uh, actually later on in life, he'll, he actually signs autographs as Atticus oh, Finch. Yeah, I remember. So uh, he's very proud of his daughter. Very, very proud of his daughter. So Nell, she didn't fit the Southern standard of what a well-bred little girl should be. Hers was mostly a comfortable and congenial upbringing. She was an unashamed tomboy throughout her life. When she was five years old, she befriended Truman Parsons, a son of a southern teenage beauty and ne'er-do-well father. He was small for his age, spoiled, wimpy, and would fly into raging tantrums. Although Truman was older than Nell, she was bigger and tougher than he was. And they became inseparable friends. Aww. Nell was willing and able to defend him from the play school playground bullies. So guys come up, start pounding on him. He'd run off to his friend, old Nell Harper Lee. And she'd take care of the bullies for him. Uh, they shared a love for reading and a keen intellect and imagination, which made them somewhat different from the other children their age. Does he end up being Boo Radley? No. Okay. Uh, he, he is in the book, but not Boo Radley. Oh. Uh, they also share a childhood hurt of parental abandonment. Truman's parents leaving him in the care of his relatives while they, the father kind of left and the mother was, she was a teenager at the time and she kind of didn't have her shit together. She went somewhere else and they left him in the care of some relatives. So, he pretty much lost his parents, and Nell's mother, battling her demons and mental illness, wasn't ever really there for her. She had her father, but there's a big difference between having your dad 
and having your mom and dad. Yeah, that it's like that um, show now and then when Christina Ritchie is growing up, she doesn't have her mom there and she doesn't know how to do She's taping her boobs down. Taping her boobs down. And when she does want to try to put lipstick on, she doesn't know how to do it. So she's growing up to be a tomboy because she doesn't have a mother figure there. She's got a whole bunch of brothers that she wrestles with. Yeah. And she doesn't know how to do the girly stuff. So, I mean, maybe that's why Harper Lee grew up to be tomboyish. It's always a possibility. I think it's mostly just because she, I mean, she had older sisters. She had two older sisters that she could lean on. You know, for that stuff. I just think that's who she was. I just think that's what was going on in her head. She just, she wasn't into the girly shit. And she never is for the rest of us. She's never into the girly shit. AC uh, observed the children's days spent in the treehouse reading books or making up their own stories and plots. So he presented them with the most unusual gift for most children, but a treasure to Nell and Truman, an Underwood typewriter. Uh huh. Which they lugged around as their constant companion. The people and places of Monroeville provided ample story material for two bright, imaginative children. In the mid 30s, Truman's mother sent for him to join her and her new husband in New York City, but the but their friendship continued through the years. When he began his own writing career, he changed his name to Truman Capote. Oh. Uh huh. Yeah. So two pretty major figures in the literary community grow up literally with each other. It, it's, and he and she took care. Oh, she yeah she she beat up bullies for him. That is amazing. Yeah. After high school, Nell chose Huntington Woman's College to continue her education. After her freshman year, she transferred to the University of Alabama Tuscaloosa, where she became the editor for the Rammer Jammer a college publication with a satirical slant that encouraged creative expression, which was perfect for her. Uh, Nell, who was unconcerned with fashion, never wore makeup, smoked a pipe, and could cuss in an unladylike fashion. Ooh, I could be like Harper Lee. You could, you could, except you do wear makeup. Only when we go out for special occasions. And you don't smoke a pipe. No, but I smoke cigarettes. Yes, you do. (laughs) Uh, honestly, she was just uh, disinterested in the type of socializing that occupied the minds of many students her age. Those who took the time to know her described her as comfortable in her own skin, own skin and had a quick humor. Uh, she didn't need the approval of others and didn't seek it out. The semester before graduation, she dropped out and moved to New York City, where her friend Truman was making a name for himself as a writer. Now, uh... Ooh, do you think she was getting jealous? No, because jealousy isn't in her vocabulary. Envious? No. She just... She just wanted to go. She wanted to go to the city and make it. And and, and she wanted to write. She's going to have a hard time with it at the beginning. But she's not jealous or envious of pretty much any... She's she's comfortable with who she is and what, what she has. Jealousy does come to play in that friendship. But it's not from her. Oh. Yeah. Now, to support herself, she worked in a bookstore and then as a ticket agent for Eastern Airlines and later at British Overseas Air Corporation. Uh, keeping a roof overhead and food on the table, however, was not facilitating her writing career. Truman introduced her to a couple in his circle of theater friends 
Michael Martin Brown and his wife, Joy, who uh, was a fellow Southerner. They took an immediate liking to each other and became good friends. Nell opened up to them and confided her dreams of becoming a writer. In 1956, Nell was unable to get enough time off work to travel to Monroeville for the Christmas holiday and was invited to join the Browns. Well, it was a Christmas that changed her life forever. The Browns presented her with the proposition that they would pay her living expenses for a year so she could quit her job and write full time. Nice. And as far as I know, they ask for nothing in return. I wasn't. A, I looked around for it because I was like, "This is too good to be true." What did they want from her? And I couldn't personally find anything. There might be something out there, but I couldn't personally find anything that they wanted in return, other than probably just being paid back for what they did. I wonder if the, she thanks them in the book, like you know how. I don't remember seeing an acknowledgement to them in the book, but I could be wrong. I haven't read it in a long time. I could check. Yeah, we'll check later. Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Soon after, she was invited to discuss her writing with the editors of J.P. Lippincott and Company. They liked her writing. It was obvious she was no amateur, but her coming-of-age story about three children in the town of Maycomb was just a series of events without a strong central plot to hold it together. It would need a lot of work before it could be ready for publication. And this is where we come to the publisher. The... The Browns changed her life, but without this publisher, it probably would have gotten published from somewhere, but you would have never, you wouldn't have cared about it. You would have never heard about it because it wouldn't have been any good. This publisher really shaped To Kill a Mockingbird from what it was. In the spring of 1957, a 31-year-old Lee delivered a manuscript for go set a watchman to her agent to send to publishers, including the now defunct J.B. Lippincott Company, which eventually bought it. There, it fell into the hands of Teresa von Hoff Tory. That's Hoff with two H's, two O's, and two F's. <laughs> H-O-H-O-F-F. Known professionally as Tay Hoff, a small wiry veteran editor in her late 50s, Tay was impressed. Quote, The spark of the true writer flashed in every line. But, as Tay saw it, the manuscript was by no means fit for publication. It was, as she described it, more a series of anecdotes rather than a full conceived novel. During the next couple years, she led Lee from one draft to the next until the book finally achieved its finished form and was retitled To Kill a Mockingbird. Publishing lore is filled with stories of famously headstrong editors imposing, imposing their will on authors. Maxwell Perkins, the longtime editor at Charles Sh uh, Schreiber, Schreibner and Sons, told Ernest Hemingway to tone it down. 
And he cut 90,000 words from Thomas Wolfe's debut novel, Look, Homeward Angel. Gordon Lish rewrote entire passages of Raymond Carver's stories and later boasted about it to friends. So, through the years, publishers have been really getting in the face of authors and, and everything that they're doing. I mean, telling Ernest Hemingway to tone it down is asking to get punched in the face. I would be like, fuck you, motherfucker. Because Ernest Hemingway wasn't one of these guys that you fucked with. He wasn't somebody who took to that type of stuff lightly. He was a fighter. So to have the nuts to tell Ernest Hemingway to tone it down, uh, you got to have some you gotta have some balls. Tay, which we will call her Tay, uh, who died in 1974 at the age of 75, was in a different mold. Quote, I suffer from some sort of mother complex so that I always want to make paths smooth for the people I am fond of and whom I have high opinion. Nicholas de Blanco, who worked with Tay as a young author in the late 60s, said in an interview, quote, she was closely attentive and tough, but I never felt manhandled by her. As far as her influence on Lee and Mockingbird goes, signs certainly point to a close collaboration and an intimate relationship. Like many unpublished authors, Lee was unsure of her talents. Quote, I was a first-time writer, so I did as I was told. Tay offers more detailed characterization of the process in the Lippincott corporate history. Quote, After a couple of false starts, the storyline, interplay of characters, and fall of emphasis grew clearer, and with each revision, the true statue of the novel became evident. There appeared to be a natural give-and-take between author and editor. Tay said, quote, When she disagreed with a suggestion, we talked it out, sometimes for hours, and sometimes she came around to my way of thinking, sometimes I too, hers. Sometimes the discussion would open up an entirely new line of country. It's clear that Tay provided more than just editorial guidance. One winter night, Lee threw her manuscript out the window into the snow, before calling Tay in tears. Tay told her to march outside immediately and pick up the pages. Uh, after Mockingbird, author and editor remained close. When Lee found a 12-toed kitten huddled under a pipe in the basement of her apartment building, she brought it to Tay and her husband in a wicker basket. Quote, He needed a home. Tay wrote in a memoir about her pets called Cats and Other People. She wrote a memoir about her pets. Uh, quote, She knew us very well and pulled out all the right stops. So year after year, Tay tried to gently coax a second book out of Lee while at the same time fending off her impatient colleagues. Tay wanted another book. For all those years that they knew each other, she wanted another book. But she wasn't going to let anybody force it out of her. Because she knew that if Harper forced a book, it would be no good. Right. So she 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 may have talked to her about maybe putting out another one. She never forced her, and she would she adamantly keep anybody who wanted to force her from it away. So she she was to Harper what Harper was to Truman. She was her protector in that way. Okay. Uh, Edward Berlingame the eventual executive editor at Lippincott, said, quote, Lippincott's sales department would have published Harper Lee's laundry list, but Tay 
really guarded Nell like a junkyard dog. She was not going to allow any commercial pressure or anything else to put stress stress on her to publish anything that wouldn't make Nell proud or do justice to her. Anxious as we all were to get another book from Harper Lee, it was a decision we all supported. They had enough respect for Tay and her relationship with Harper to not push Tay that much about it because they they knew what they were going to get. It was going to be a flat no right. until Harper decided that it was time. By the time Tay retired from Lippincott in the early 1970s, it had been more than a decade since To Kill a Mockingbird was published. There was still no second book. When she died in her sleep in 1974, Lee was devastated. We can only speculate as to what her attitude towards Watchmen being published would have been, because Watchmen's based off the same manuscript. That's the manuscript that she completely revised and changed. So to just take that and kind of just put it out there, I personally don't think Tay would have been very happy about it. Probably not. She she would have probably spent hours and a couple more years trying to talk Harper into changing some things, and Harper would have died before it ever got released. Yeah, I think if they were the same age, um, if Harper would have died before Tay, Ghost Out of Watchmen would have never seen the light of day. Unless, unless the executors of her estate decided to put it out just in its raw form. But... As long as Tay was alive, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I, I think that would have been more controversial than what was released. Uh, well, what was released so far wasn't exactly controversial what was released. It was how, why, and when it was released. Yeah. So, But we'll get to that later. Over a period of several years, interrupted by the deaths of her mother, her mother, mother, her mother, and her brother, and other responsibilities... She worked on her novel. After completing the manuscript in 1959, Lee went to Kansas with Truman Capote and provided research assistance while he worked on the manuscript for his nonfiction novel, In Cold Blood, the, the, the major true crime novel. She did a ton of research for it. I don't think not many people know it because he just puts a little dedication for it, which we'll get to. But she was a huge, without Harper Lee... In Cold Blood, probably, it, he would have written it because he's too egotistical not to write it, but it would not have been the iconic piece of true co- crime nonfiction that it was. She was a huge part of that. Because... Well, no, she did all the legwork the, for him. The people down there in Kansas did not like Truman Capote. He was flashy. He was, I mean, gay. He was in everybody's face, and that's not who they were. They didn't like him, but they loved Harper because she was more down-to-earth, and they could talk to her. Without Harper Lee, he gets nothing. He really, he, he will get nothing without her. And what he does will piss you off. Uh, let's see. But the, the, the Lee provided invaluable as her comforting southern manner helped blunt Capote's more flamboyant personality. Decades later, many in Holcomb still recall Lee with fondness while seemingly holding Capote at arm's length. Thanks to Lee, local residents, law enforcement, and friends of the slain 
clutter, clutter family opened their doors to the unlikely pair. Each night, Capote and Lee retired to a small motel outside of town to go over the events of the day. Lee would eventually contribute more than 150 pages of richly detailed notes depicting everything from the size and color of the furniture in the clutter home to what television show was playing in the background as the pair interviewed sources. So she took, she wrote down everything. She even wrote an anonymous article in a journal for former FBI agents in the early 1960s, which praised the lead detective on the clutter case and promoted Capote's ongoing work. Her authorship of the article in The Grapevine wasn't revealed until 2016. So she wrote this and sent it and didn't even tell anybody it was her because she didn't care about the admiration. She was trying to help her friend and also thanking the investigators in, on the case. That's a true friend right there. Well, and that's just who she was. He dedicated the book to her along with his then partner, Jack Dunphy, and credited her with secretarial work. Fucking dick. Yeah. And with uh, befriending some of the individuals who, with whom he sought interviews. Her only comment on the expedition has been that, quote, The crime intrigued Truman, and I'm intrigued with crime. And boy, I wanted to go. It was deep calling to deep. After the runaway success of Mockingbird, Capote's jealousy gnawed at him. See, there is envy. Uh, leading to a growing rift between the two. As Lee would write to a friend many years later, quote, I was his friend, and I did something that Truman could not forgive. I wrote a novel that sold. He nursed his envy for more than 20 years. Lee was deeply hurt at the lack of recognition she was giving for the immense amount of work that she had done. Despite the tension, Lee continued to help Capote on the Clutter Project as he became increasingly obsessed with it. It took him nearly five years to publish the series, which he expanded into a book. But some, including Lee, at least in private, criticized his willingness to alter facts and situations to further his narrative. Uh, she would later describe Capote in a letter to a friend, noting, quote, I don't know if you understood this about him. But his compulsive lying was like this. If you said, did you know JFK was shot? He'd easily answer, yes, I was driving the car he was riding in. Yeah, I think we all know somebody like that, but I don't know, it's just, it's kind of a shitty thing. That's one of the reasons we didn't cover the DeCamp book when we covered Robert E. Howard, because he changed so much of the story to fit his narrative. And that, that just, if it's going to be nonfiction, it needs to be true. If you're writing a fiction, that's fine change whatever you want you can take artistic license but nonfiction needs to be true it needs to go it needs to be the story it does i mean you can't fuck with nonfiction. hey guys have you been trying to grow out that beard i know it took me a while to grow mine let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com they have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, 
If you use my coupon code, KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code, KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now, Odin demands it. Now, to really know what To Kill a Mockingbird is all about, you really need to know the time it was set in. And the best example of racial injustice injustice at that time and in that state would be the Scottsboro trial. Uh, Not a lot of, I don't know if everybody knows this trial. Um, I won't spend too terribly much time on it, getting into all the little details of people coming and going um, as far as lawyers go. But uh, this is what getting railroaded because of the color of your skin looks like. This is, um, this is the epitome of what it looks like. So, the saga began in March 25th, 1931, when a fight broke out between groups of young black and white passengers riding on a freight train through Jackson County. The white boys were forced from the train and wired ahead to the next stop on the line to have the black youths apprehended. When the train stopped just outside the town of Paint Rock, local police and a mob apprehended nine African Americans ranging from ages 13 to 20. Only four of the young men knew each other and were traveling together. So it was just a bunch of black kids that they grabbed because they were black kids. Only four of them were even together. The police also questioned Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, two white women who also were hitching a ride on the train looking for work. In the hope of avoiding vagrancy and morality charges, the woman falsely accused the nine young black men, Olin Montgomery, Clarence Norris, Haywood Patterson, Ozzie Powell, Willie Robertson, Charlie Weems, Eugene William, Williams, and the brothers Andy and Roy Wright of rape. Yeah, so about as bad of a thing as you can accuse some black kids of back then was raping a white woman that's it, about as bad as it was going to get Mur- yeah, probably even worse than murder the accused were arrested and transported to the Scottsboro to Scottsboro the Jackson County seat to await trial over the next seven years the case made its way through the state and federal judicial system The first set of trials took place in four groups over the course of just four days in early April 1931. Thousands of angry white gathers gathered outside the courthouse to monitor the proceedings, and at the request of the local sheriff, Governor Benjamin Meek Miller sent the Alabama National Guard to Scottsboro to prevent a lynching. Before an all-white jury and a hostile judge, the defendant's court-appointed attorney put up a meager defense repeatedly declining to cross-examine witnesses and failing to scrutinize the prosecution's key pieces of evidence. What evidence did they have besides the two the, the two witnesses the, 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 the in two, quotation marks? Yeah, but he wouldn't cross-examine anybody. They would go up there tell their story and then the defense wouldn't do anything. Is he pretty much they pretty much just sat there and then they let everybody else tell their story and they just had to sit there and listen. Each of the four juries returned guilty verdicts in a matter of hours. Eight defendants were sentenced to death, 
but the jury split over whether to sentence the youngest defendant, 13-year-old Roy White, right to death or life imprisonment, and a mistrial was declared. Wright remained in prison, awaiting the verdicts of the trial of his co-defendants until 1937. The judge set the execution executions for July 10th, the earliest possible date the law would allow. So they wanted to get these kids killed quick. It's fucking bullshit. The case might have ended there if it were not for the in- intervention of the International Labor Defense, or the ILD, what we will call them. A, race, a radically le, a radical legal action organization sponsored by the Communist Party USA. Go communists. <laughs> no, don't go communists. No, don't go communists. No. If they're the only ones willing to help them. Well, the ILD recognized the case's potential to become a lightning rod for a nation's struggle against racism, as well as a powerful propaganda vehicle and recruitment tool for the Communist Party. So they weren't doing this shit out of the kindness of their hearts. They were doing it because they saw as a way to get people to come to them. Most white people didn't want anything to do with communists anyway. So if you stood up for for a bunch of black kids in a trial where all the white people want them to be hanged, then you're not losing anything. If anything, you're going to gain a bunch of black people to your side. So... They really didn't have anything to lose by going for this unless a bunch of fucking hillbillies caught them, you know, on a back road and killed them, too, which happens to, you know, happened then. If you're a white person sticking up for a black person, you could get killed by other white people for being a, you know, a lover, as they would call them. Yeah. Uh, ILD lawyers quickly won the trust of the defendants and their parents as well as a stay of execution until the case could be reviewed by the Alabama Supreme Court. In the courtroom, the ILD appealed the case before the Alabama Supreme Court, which upheld the convictions. The group then turned to the U.S. Supreme Court, which in November 1932 overrode the Alabama's decision and granted new trials to all the defendants. So, finally, so maybe we got some retribution. In the process... Powell versus Alabama, as the Supreme Court ruling was labeled, established a key precedent to enforcing African-American rights to adequate counsel under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. At the state and circuit court levels, however, the legal campaign to free the Scottsboro defendants met with repeated frustration and disappointment, despite overwhelming evidence of the defendants' innocence. The most persuasive evidence came from one of the accusers herself, Ruby Bates. In the break between the first set of trials and the lead defendant Haywood Patterson's second trial, which became which began in March 1933, Bates recanted her story and agreed to testify for the defense. So she stood up and said, "What I had said before was bullshit. I lied, and I will help him get out of prison." But it wasn't good enough. Admitting that Price concocted the story to avoid charges for vagrancy and crossing the state line for immoral purposes in the violation of the Mann Act, that's why she had told them that they had raped her, because if she would have just said, oh, I'm I'm not doing anything, I'm just going across the state line to do, you know, whatever, uh, you're going to get in trouble for that shit back then. 
So that's why she lied, and she's willing to recant that. She later marched in protest and spoke at rallies for the accused. In addition, Samuel Leibowitz, the ILD's non-communist lead attorney, found numerous inconsistencies with Price's testimony and highlighted the medical examination of Price and Bates, which refuted the pair's charges of rape. So not only do we have one of the witnesses saying this didn't happen, but they have medical evidence to prove that neither one had been raped. Medical evidence. You okay over there? Yeah, I just want to go, you know, go back in time with some snakes like from Rick and Morty and have them kill those. <laughs> but once more, the jury returned a guilty verdict and recommended the death penalty. That's a fucking bullshit. They're so fucking ignorant. Then in an act of incredible courage, Judge James Horton overrode the jury's verdict. Horton had carefully reviewed the evidence and met privately with one of the medical examiners who told him he thought the girls were lying. Lawyers for the state, however, continued to pursue the case, this time under a judge sympathetic to the prosecution. Uh, this is one, one of the reasons we're always saying that prosecutors have way too much power because they can still do this type of shit, which is infuriating. Yeah, if they don't... If they can go from judge to judge to judge until they get the yeah, sentence pretty, they want. Pretty much. In December 1933, Haywood Patterson and Clara, Clarence Norris were convicted of rape and sentenced to death for a third time by another all-white jury. Five other defendants remained in prison awaiting new trials, while the remaining two were removed to juvenile court and later convicted. In June 1934, the Alabama Supreme Court once again upheld the convictions of Patterson and Norris. Following this latest round of guilty verdicts, ILD attorneys attempted to bribe Victoria Price in a foolish act of desperation. When the bribe came to light, Leibowitz, whose relationship with the ILD was already, was it had always been tenuous, uh, severed ties with the group and established his own rival defense organization, the American Scottsboro Committee, or the ASC. In January 1935, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to review the third conviction of Patterson and Norris. Three months later, the court once again overturned the guilty verdict and ordered new trials, ruling in Patterson v. Alabama and Norris v. Alabama that the defendants were denied a fair trial because African Americans had been systematically excluded from Jackson County jury rolls. The landmark decision paved the way for integration of juries across the nation. Patterson was convicted of rape for a fourth time in January 1936, but this time his sentence was set to 75 years in prison. Following the verdict, another of the defendants, Ozzie Powell, was shot in the head after attacking a deputy sheriff, a deputy sheriff and an apparent escape attempt. Who knows if it was a real attempt or not. After Patterson's conviction was uphold, upheld in an Alabama Supreme Court, the prosecution and the Scottsboro Defense Committee agreed to a strange compromise. In an effort to end the long ordeal, Clarence Norris was convicted of rape and sentenced to death. Norris's sentence was subsequently commuted 
to life imprisonment by Alabama Governor Bib Graves. So he did nothing, but to keep from being killed, he had to be charged. He had to go to prison for the rest of his life. So fucked up. Andy Wright and Charlie Weems were also convicted of rape and sentenced to lengthy prison terms. Rape charges were dropped against Powell, but he was convicted of assaulting the deputy sheriff and was sentenced to 20 years. Meanwhile, all charges against the other four defendants, Roy Wright, Olin Montgomery, Willie Robertson, and Eugene Williams, were dropped. Thus, on the basis of the same body of evidence, four defendants were freed and four convicted. So the exact same evidence, the exact same recounting of stories. Four of them went free. Four of them spent 20 years to life in prison. And it was all based on And age. one of them was murdered. <clears throat> and, all, and it was all based on a racial, racially charged lie. Their color and their race. In 1938, a final attempt to win the remaining prisoners' freedom failed when both the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles and Governor Graves denied pardon applications. Charles Weems was paroled in 1943. Clarence Norris and Andy Wright were paroled a year later, but were both sent back to prison shortly thereafter for violating the terms of their probation. Ozzie Powell was paroled in 1946. Haywood Patterson escaped from prison in 1948. And normally I'm not big on escaping from prison. I think if you're in there, you do your time. But in this case, I say bravo to him. Norris, the last surviving defendant, was finally pardoned in 1976. On April 19, 2013, Alabama Governor Robert Bentley signed historic le legislation exonerating the nine men of all guilt in the case at the Scottsboro Boy Museum and Cultural Center in Scottsboro. Clarence Norris Jr., was in attendance. On November 21st, 2013, the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles voted unanimously to pardon Haywood Patterson, Charlie Weems, and Andy Wright, the last of the accused, to still have convictions on their record. That right there is really all you need to know about... Because if, if you're out there going, oh, there's no real racial injustice, this type of stuff doesn't happen. It's just people saying shit. This, this happened then... And it still happens now. And it's a fucking travesty. And I know this doesn't really have anything to do with the author. But I felt it was important to get that across. Because it's what To Kill a Mockingbird was about. Not, not that case specifically. But just the racial injustices in the time of what Mockingbird was written. And even in the time that it... She wrote it, and 20 years from then, and now, and unfortunately probably 20 years from now, it's still going to be that way. Maybe not to that extreme, but in a lot of cases, it is to that extreme. And it's, a lot of people are out there probably saying, just get back to Harper. We want to hear about Harper. But that, I, I felt that was an important part to put in. Her dad was representing some of those not those. Not those, but he did represent, yeah, he did represent some African Americans, and he failed at least once to prove their innocence, which you shouldn't have to prove somebody's innocence. They have to prove that you're guilty. Right. The system was completely backwards for them. Yes, it's, it still is, and it's it's a shame. It's, it's depressing. Yeah. All right, well, 
I know we didn't get to Mockingbird, but that's where we will start off next time on part two of Harper Lee. Nell Harper Lee. Yeah. And it's Nell. There is an E at the end of Nell. But Don't she, call her Nelly. She doesn't want to be called Nelly. That's why she, she, she goes by Harper Lee in the she book. She doesn't sing hot in here. No, okay. <laughs> so did the Truman Capote thing throw you for a loop? Yeah, I said was... Truman Parsons. I figured you would have called. I figured you would have got it. No, that's that was. I was very surprised by that. That's yeah. very interesting. I didn't realize. And and we'll uh, then the next episode, um, we'll we'll talk about uh, Mockingbird and who Truman um, is the inspiration for in that book. And uh, we'll cover some of her awards, uh, what she did from Mockingbird until her death, because it's it's honestly. It's a chore to find anything on her from the time from after Mockingbird came out to when she goes into a assisted living facility and Ghost Head of Watchmen comes out because she laid so low. Like I said, a lot of people thought she was dead until she came out and said, hey, there's a new book. And then she died. <laughs> like, boo, here I am. Oh, bye. Bye. <laughs> yeah, some, pretty much. Um uh, she, you know, we'll, we'll cover her trying to ro- write her own true crime novel and why it doesn't work out. <laughs> and uh, just a, few, a bunch of other stuff fail. on uh, part two. So let's get the uh, socials out there. Stephanie Ann? Um, at open a effing book at or on Twitter and Instagram at audio parfait on Twitter and Instagram. You are. And I am at ECJBAT at Twitter and Instagram. I am Young ETAM, Twitter and Instagram. That's Y O U N G E T A M. You can go to our website, audioparfait.com. We have episodes of the, uh, Open a Fucking Book and our other podcast up there. We'll have some information of hopefully some other stuff that we're going to have going on in the uh, near future, possibly. Um, Go to our Anchor page, anchor.fm slash openafbook. Uh, check out everything there. You can leave us a voice message, and good or bad, you might find your way onto our podcast. You never know. Ooh, uh-huh. Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't it? You're not going to be a podcaster. You might as well get your voice out there somehow. Shit. Uh, email us, info at audioparfait.com, for literally anything. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, if there's an author you want us to cover, if we covered something wrong, if there's a book you want us to talk about, just news, things that you're reading or watching or listening to that you want to tell us about, we're happy to hear about it. Just just send us an email and let us know and get back to you as soon as we can. Um, other than that, are we good? We're good. All Adios. Right. All right. Well, go from, open a fucking book. From now until the time I get to talk to you next time, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. I Bye. Said fucking a book. <laughs>